Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. All-star closer, Kenley Jansen, we have a question. What's the best podcast of all time? Baseball isn't boring, baby. I'm Rob Bradford, and every single day I'm sitting down with the biggest names to show you this great game is the greatest game. It's my podcast. It's my passion. It's a cause I started more than two years ago and is now the most prolific national daily baseball pod there is. Another fact. So jump aboard the B.I.B. Express. Follow and listen to Baseball Isn't Boring, presented by Wasabi Hot Cloud Storage on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. What was it like to live through the worst pandemic in our history? What lessons can we learn walking in the footsteps of those who lived through the great influenza pandemic of 1918? This week on 880 In-Depth, we take a trip through time. What was it like living in 1918? What did we learn from the great flu pandemic? And what did we fail to learn? Frankly, there are hundreds of thousands of Americans who should be alive, who are dead, because of messaging problems. Welcome to 880 In-Depth. I'm Tim Sheld. Two facts about the 1918 Great Influenza Pandemic stand out to me. More people died from that flu outbreak around the world than were killed in all of World War I. And that one year of death in our country, 1918, lowered the average life expectancy by 12 years. Wow. 12 years. In just a bit, We'll hear the thoughts of how that pandemic relates to the one we're living through today with author and professor John M. Barry. But first, we wanted to get a better feel of what it was like living in New York a hundred years ago. Just how the great waves of flu back then affected society. Come with us to the Lower East Side of Manhattan, 97 Orchard Street to be exact, the Tenement Museum, today a National Historic Landmark, which tells the story of American immigrants who built the country we live in today. Our tour guide up the tight winding stairs of this five-story brick building is David Favolaro, Senior Director of Curatorial Affairs for the Tenement Museum. He took our Peter Haskell on the tour. It was in 1919. Yes, men and women were dead. Where's that to go? Where's the dog? Do you want to walk up the stairs? Yeah, sure, sure. Give it a nice hard walk. 
any trouble picking up trash on these stairs. Kind of a narrow staircase. It's a, it's a little narrow. Uh, it takes a little bit of effort to get up here on the third floor. Uh, 97 Orchard Street is a five-story building. What's it made of, and when was it built? Now, 97 Orchard Street was built in 1863 and inhabited as a residence until 1935. Uh, the building was you know, effectively condemned in 1935 because of the staircase we just walked up, which was... Um, by that point in time considered a fire hazard, so had to be replaced uh, with fireproof materials. Uh, and the landlord decided he did not want to do that for several different reasons and instead evicted all of the residents of the building. In, in 1918, <coughs> was this uh, a, a nice building, a bad building, a middle, middle building? How would you describe it? Uh, you know, I mean, this was um, a typical building on the Lower East Side, home to working class immigrants, mostly from Eastern Europe, Ashkenazi Jews from Eastern Europe who had arrived, you know, over the, the several preceding decades, beginning in, say, uh, the 1880s or 1890s, and, and really settling here in a building like this as a kind of first, first home. But this is also, by that point in time, right, by the early 20th century, by the 19-teens, a 50-year-old building. Uh, that had been inhabited by thousands of um, of newcomers from uh, from Europe. The family who who called this apartment home, their name was Rogershevsky. They were uh, Lithuanian, or what today is Lithuania, then the Russian Empire Jewish immigrants who arrived here around the turn of the century. But it's also typical uh, for what these homes might have looked like for other um, Jewish immigrant families from Eastern Europe. And on the tour in which we tell the story of the 1918 influenza epidemic, uh, we use this space to um, explore the story of the Baronescu family. Uh, they were also East European Jewish immigrants. The father was originally from what is today Romania, the mother from what is today Russia, uh, and they you know, they would have lived in a space that looked very much like this. Um, three rooms, 325 square feet, uh, shared by, you know, about um, this particular case, uh, seven, seven individuals. So two parents and five children. How old were the kids? Uh, you know, they ranged, they ranged in ages. And, and I think what's really interesting about this particular story uh, is that um, the year in 1918 when the father, the sort of patriarch of this family, is named Jacob Baronescu, when he becomes ill with the flu and ultimately dies from it in, in uh, the beginning of November of 1918, his wife Sarah is pregnant, right? So um, uh, much of what we know about this particular family story comes from oral history interviews conducted, you know, now some 30 years ago in the very early days of the museum with um, with this child, her name was Jenny, uh, also known as Jacqueline, who um, who was born after her father passed, right? So sort of never knew her father. And it's a really interesting uh, story for her to sort of relate this, um, the story of her family, not only living here at 97 Orchard Street and her own story growing up here, but with the stories passed down to her about her father, 
what he was like, what his life was like, and, and his ultimate uh, battle and, and um, death from, from uh, influenza in 1918. The stories of immigrants who passed through this building and in this neighborhood are documented in the interviews with family members over the years who helped fill in the blanks. The daughter of Jacob Bernescu and her daughters told their stories to curator David Favolaro. What they tell uh, is that uh, he was employed across the street and actually owned his own business. They actually gave us a, um, uh, a copy of his business card, right? You know, so many of us have family photographs passed down in our own families, but I certainly don't have my ancestors, my great-grandfather's business card. It's really cool, right? So he owned, um, you know, what effectively would be like a cleaning business what we would think of as maybe like dry cleaners of sorts in 97, uh, excuse me, 92 Orchard Street across the, just across the, the street here in the sort of basement area. And it seems, at least from the stories they've told us, that business was linked to his involvement in the Yiddish theater. He was kind of an amateur actor in the Yiddish theater, belonged to what they called a sort of amateur Yiddish theater acting troupe. Uh, and he would... Um, clean the uniforms, or excuse me, and the, the costumes uh, from, uh, from the Yiddish theater. The story passed down in the family is that he contracted the flu visiting some of his friends in the Yiddish theater who were on their sick beds uh, tending to them. He was also, as they said, a kind of pres quote president of uh, society, which we've interpreted as, um, you know, a president of a Landsmannschaft, maybe involved in the in the in the theater world, right? So uh, he was actually tending to some of his uh, friends and and um, uh, you know uh, fellow fellow actors, and that's where he he contracted the flu. What one of the things that's really interesting to me, I think, about uh, both this story and about um, the history of the 1918 flu epidemic, right? Obviously, the flu is something we contend with every year, and this was very different in 1918, in part because folks like Jacob were the ones who ultimately were the most vulnerable, right? He was in his mid-30s when he passed, right? And so most of the folks, as you may know, right, who ultimately became sick and, and died were like in the prime of their, in the prime of their lives, and you know, they're 25 to 40 years old. Which leads us to the New York Times best-selling book, The Great Influenza, the story of the deadliest pandemic in history. Yet the story of the 1918 influenza virus is not simply one of havoc, death, and desolation, of a society fighting a war against nature superimposed on a war against another human society. It is also a story of science, of discovery of how one thinks, and of how one changes the way one thinks, of how amidst near-utter chaos a few men sought the coolness of contemplation, the utter calm that precedes not philosophizing, but grim, determined action. That's an excerpt from the Penguin Random House book read by Scott Brick. Today, the author, John M. Barry, is a professor at Tulane University School of Public Health and Medicine. He is a speaker in great demand because of his knowledge of the 1918 flu 
and his perspective at how it differs and compares to what we're living through today. He spoke to our Peter Haskell this week. How has the course of COVID tracked with the pandemic from 1918? What's different? What's similar? Uh, well, there's a lot of both. Uh, you know, of course, the basics is uh, a virus jump species uh, into humans. Um, it spreads almost in the identical fashion. Uh, droplets airborne. Um, both attack virtually every organ in the body, uh, you know, particularly neurological, cardiovascular, although they're primarily respiratory viruses. Um, 1918 was much more lethal. Um, thankfully, we're not dealing with a virus as deadly as 1918. Um, but COVID, um, is is much more transmissible makes a lot more people sick uh, another two main differences uh, the target demographics in 1918 is primarily young people uh, there were there were two real peaks of, of high mortality and that were uh, young children under under the age of 10 and then again people in their in their 20s and it began to tail off um, and in fact, well over 90% of the excess mortality was people younger than 65. Of course, COVID is exactly the opposite. Another really big difference uh, is time. Uh, everything about influenza, uh, not only 1918, but generally in seasonal influenza moves faster than uh, COVID. You know, from the incubation period, how long you shed virus, how long you're sick, uh, and serial transmission, uh, and, and these things add up. So, uh, both an ordinary seasonal influenza and, and in 1918, you're really talking about a period of, of weeks uh, in any particular community. You know, uh, probably two-thirds of the total deaths all over a two-year period. Uh, occurred in a period of about 14 or 15 weeks in the fall of 1918. And in any given city, it was actually faster than that, probably six to 10 weeks. And of course, we've been dealing with COVID for uh, close on two years now, uh, with no end in sight, unfortunately. Back in 2004, Barry's work caught the eye of then-President George W. Bush as his team was looking into pandemic preparedness. It helped that White House see through the lens of history how important truth and science are in fighting a global pandemic. We asked Barry, does he see missteps in the way we battled COVID-19? You bet. We you know if, if, for example, masks, you know, the masks are... are so important potentially in in limiting the spread of the disease, and, and yet people object to wearing them. You know, the, the, it, yeah, they're somewhat uncomfortable, but there's there's not a state in the country that doesn't have a law against smoking in public places restaurants, bars, other public places. And the reason for those laws are because secondhand smoke 
can injure someone who's standing nearby. But that injury, which could cause cancer, takes years to develop. Whereas, you know, you're talking about exposure over a few minutes that can kill you. Uh, and masks can help prevent that. So can vaccines. Uh, and the idea that you have opposition to on the so-called basis of, you know, it infringes on your individual freedom. I mean, so, so the anti-smoking ordinances, these things save lives. You know, how are they politicized? It's just, it's, it's crazy. You know, seatbelt laws, where the only person you're going to hurt is yourself, and yet we have seatbelt laws. And, and here, the, these things save not only the life of someone who's wearing a mask, not to mention the life of someone who gets vaccinated. Um, but it, taking those actions would save other people's lives who are completely innocent, uh, and, and yet people oppose them on political basis. Uh, just nuts. How do we undo this to reverse this? Can we undo this to reverse this? Well, it's pretty difficult uh, at this point. You know, you can't. How do you put Humpty Dumpty back together again? Uh, you know, it would have been very easy at the beginning, I think, for a unified approach to, to develop. And it would have been very much in uh, Trump's political self-interest had he done that. Uh, in fact, the only time in his presidency that he cracked 50% in approval uh, was a couple of days after he said we were at war with the virus. Uh, had he maintained that position, you know, the country could have, I think, unified uh, around this issue. There's still be plenty of other politicization on other issues. But we've gone so far. Uh, if, if Omicron, right now, thank God, Omicron looks like it might be certainly no more severe, but maybe even less severe than the variants that have gone before, which incidentally, you know, that's another great similarity is the development of variants. You know, if we go back to 
so you talk about Omicron. We've got uh, potentially other variants down the road. What what does 1918 tell us about how many more of these things we could expect? And maybe more significantly, what's the likelihood that they're going to cause severe illness as opposed to just infection? Well, I'm not sure 1918 tells us anything about that. Uh, you know, that's sort of the luck of the draw. These these variants are, are arise randomly. The mutations are random. Uh, I can tell you in, in, in 1918, they had a, a first wave that was extraordinarily mild, uh, no worse than ordinary seasonal influenza, and it passed almost entirely unnoticed except in retrospect. Then a variant developed that was much more transmissible than the first wave, but it was also much more lethal. Uh, however, it was very similar in in other ways uh, to the to the first wave. So if you got sick in the first wave, you actually had up to 94% protection against death, which is about as good as you're going to get. Uh, after that, uh, second wave passed uh, around the world, and again, very transmissible, infected, you know, much of the world. Then a third wave developed, another variant. Uh, in that case, it escaped the immune protection provided. If you got sick in either the first or second wave, you didn't have any protection whatsoever. Uh, against the variant that caused the third wave. Uh, it was, however, less lethal than the second wave. Uh, it was still pretty dangerous. Uh, after that, another variant emerged, uh, which, you know, some people think there are only three waves in 1918. Others argue that there were four. Uh, it's a question of semantics, really. There Personally, I think that was uh, primarily three. After that, the virus sort of adapted to the human population, and and by 1921, uh, it it was like ordinary seasonal influenza. And descendants of the 1918 virus continue to circulate in the seasonal influenza viruses that we we all are exposed to today. might argue they're all been, been variants of 1918. They can kill you, there's no question about it, but they're, they're nothing like the second wave of 1918, which is what we all think about. Uh, the reality is that there's, there's no guarantee that um, you know, COVID will behave the same way. We are now getting Omicron, which looks like it's much more transmissible than even Delta, uh, but seems to be on, on the early returns uh, less deadly uh, on a per capita basis. But if it infects everybody, you're still going to get a lot of deaths. Um, you know what comes next? There is no guarantee. Uh, there is no particular law of nature that says just because a virus becomes more transmissible it's going to be less deadly. Uh, Back in 1918, again, 
uh, that second wave was much more transmissible than the first wave, and it was much more deadly than any other influenza that we know about in the last several hundred years. Uh, With COVID, let's hope we've seen the worst of it already. And about preparing for the next one, we asked John M. Barry. Is it about domestic production? Is it about uh, storing supplies? What kinds of things should the country be doing to be better prepared? Well, it's all those things, you know, but I would say number one would be public health infrastructure, uh, which is, you know, primarily uh, a state and local expense. Uh, you know, we are woefully underinvested in that. And the investment in that has declined dramatically in the last 25 years. Uh, I would say that's that's number one. Uh, you know, stockpiling supplies and so forth. You know, uh, the Bush administration did create, actually there were hints of it in the Clinton administration, and then the Bush administration uh, went all in and creating what they call a strategic national stockpile, which included things like uh, like N95 masks and, and ventilators and uh, uh, some drugs. Uh, and most of those things were were depleted significantly in 2009. Uh, the the budget wars between. Uh, the Republicans in the Congress, mostly the Tea Party, and and the Obama administration meant that those things were never uh, restored, replaced. And you know, along comes the Trump administration, which certainly uh, you know, didn't restore it. And for the first three years of its uh, when they were in office, you know, you, you just need to recognize that public health is an investment worth making. John, thanks for your patience, and thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Uh, My pleasure. But it was God's own mighty plan. John M. Barry's book, The Great Influenza, the story of the deadliest pandemic in history comes from Penguin Random House. You can find it on Amazon. And we highly recommend a visit to the Tenement Museum in Lower Manhattan for a wonderful historic visual trip into the city's rich past. For more there, visit tenement.org. Our thanks to Peter Haskell, to Dempsey Pilat, and to Fami Redwood for help in putting this week's In-Depth together. Find us wherever you get your audio, search 880 In-Depth, subscribe and listen to us on your time, and please tell a friend. I'm Tim Scheld. Thank you for listening, and please be safe. Closer, Kenley Jansen, we have a question. What's the best podcast of all time? 
Baseball isn't boring, baby. I'm Rob Bradford, and every single day I'm sitting down with the biggest names to show you this great game is the greatest game. It's my podcast. It's my passion. It's a cause I started more than two years ago and is now the most prolific national daily baseball pod there is. Another fact, so jump aboard the B.I.B. Express. Follow and listen to Baseball Isn't Boring, presented by Wasabi Hot Cloud Storage on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.